Volume Two, Chapter Three, Part A of The Mysteries of Udolpho. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe, Volume Two, Chapter Three. He is a great observer, and he looks quite through the deeds of men. He loves no plays, he hears no music. Seldom he smiles, and smiles in such a sort as if he mocked himself, and scorned his spirit that could be moved to smile at anything. Such men as he be never at heart's ease, while they behold a greater than themselves. Julius Caesar Montoni and his companion did not return home till many hours after the dawn had blushed upon the Adriatic. The airy groups, which had danced all night along the colonnade of St. Mark, dispersed before the morning like so many spirits. Montoni had been otherwise engaged. His soul was little susceptible of light pleasures. He delighted in the energies of the passions. The difficulties and tempests of life, which wrecked the happiness of others, roused and strengthened all the powers of his mind, and afforded him the highest enjoyments of which his nature was capable. Without some object of strong interest, life was to him little more than a sleep, and, when pursuits of real interest failed, he substituted artificial ones, till habit changed their nature, and they ceased to be unreal. Of this kind was the habit of gaming, which he had adopted, first for the purpose of relieving him from the languor of inaction, but had since pursued with the ardour of passion. In this occupation he had passed the night with Cavigni and a party of young men, who had more money than rank and more vice than either. Montoni despised the greater part of these for the inferiority of their talents, rather than for their vicious inclinations, and associated with them only to make them the instruments of his purposes. Among these, however, were some of superior abilities, and a few whom Montoni admitted to his intimacy. But even towards these he still preserved a decisive and haughty air, which, while it imposed submission on weak and timid minds, roused the fierce hatred of strong ones. He had, of course, many and bitter enemies, but the rancour of their hatred proved the degree of his power, and, as power was his chief aim, he gloried more in such hatred than it was possible he could in being esteemed. A feeling so tempered as that of esteem he despised, and would have despised himself also had he thought himself capable of being flattered by it. Among the few whom he distinguished were the signors Bertolini, Arsino, and Verrezzi. The first was a man of gay temper, strong passions, dissipated, and of unbounded extravagance, but generous, brave, and unsuspicious. Arsino was reserved and haughty, loving power more than ostentation, of a cruel and suspicious temper, quick to feel an injury, and relentless in avenging it, cunning and unsearchable in contrivance, patient and indefatigable in the execution of his schemes. He had a perfect command of feature and of his passions, of which he had scarcely any but pride, revenge, and avarice. And, in the gratification of these, few considerations had power to restrain him, few obstacles to withstand the death of his stratagems. This man was the chief favourite of Montoni. Ferrezzi was a man of some talent, of fiery imagination, and the slave of alternate passions. He was gay, voluptuous, and daring, 
yet had neither perseverance or true courage, and was meanly selfish in all his aims. Quick to form schemes, and sanguine in his hope of success, he was the first to undertake and to abandon not only his own plans, but those adopted from other persons. Proud and impetuous, he revolted against all subordination, yet those who were acquainted with his character and watched the turn of his passions could lead him like a child. Such were the friends whom Montoni introduced to his family and his table on the day after his arrival at Venice. There were also of the party a Venetian nobleman, Count Morano, and a signora Livona, whom Montoni had introduced to his wife as a lady of distinguished merit, and who, having called in the morning to welcome her to Venice, had been requested to be of the dinner party. Madame Montoni received with a very ill grace the compliments of the signors. She disliked them because they were the friends of her husband, hated them because she believed they had contributed to detain him abroad till so late an hour of the preceding morning, and envied them, since, conscious of her own want of influence, she was convinced that he preferred their society to her own. The rank of Count Morano procured him that distinction which she refused to the rest of the company. The haughty sullenness of her countenance and manner, and the ostentatious extravagance of her dress, for she had not yet adopted the Venetian habit, were strikingly contrasted by the beauty, modesty, sweetness, and simplicity of Emily, who observed with more attention than pleasure the party around her. The beauty and fascinating manners of Signora Livona, however, won her involuntary regard, while the sweetness of her accents and her air of gentle kindness awakened with Emily those pleasing affections which so long had slumbered. In the cool of the evening the party embarked in Montoni's gondola and rowed out upon the sea. The red glow of sunset still touched the waves and lingered in the west, where the melancholy gleam seemed slowly expiring, while the dark blue of the upper ether began to twinkle with stars. Emily sat, given up to pensive and sweet emotions. The smoothness of the water over which she glided, its reflected images, a new heaven and trembling stars below the waves, with shadowy outlines of towers and porticoes, conspired with the stillness of the hour, interrupted only by the passing wave or the notes of distant music, to raise those emotions to enthusiasm. As she listened to the measured sound of the oars and to the remote warblings that came in the breeze, her softened mind returned to the memory of St. Aubert and to Valancourt, and tears stole to her eyes. The rays of the moon, strengthening as the shadows deepened, soon after threw a silvery gleam upon her countenance, which was partly shaded by a thin black veil, and touched it with inimitable softness. Hers was the contour of a Madonna, with the sensibility of a Magdalene, and the pensive uplifted eye, with the tear that glittered on her cheek, confirmed the expression of the character. The last strain of distant music now died in the air, for the gondola was far upon the waves, and the party determined to have music of their own. The Count Morano, who sat next to Emily, and who had been observing her for some time in silence, snatched up a lute and struck the chords with a finger of harmony herself, while his voice, a fine tenor, accompanied them in a rondeau full of tender sadness. To him, indeed, might have been applied that beautiful exhortation of an English poet had it then existed. Strike up, my master, but touch the strings with a religious softness. 
teach sounds to languish through the night's dull ear, till melancholy starts from off her couch, and carelessness grows concert to attention. With such powers of expression, the Count sung the following rondeau. Soft as yon silver ray that sleeps upon the ocean's trembling tide, Soft as the air that lightly sweeps, yon said, that swells in stately pride. Soft as the surge's stealing note that dies along the distant shores, Or warbled strain that sinks remote, so soft the sigh my bosom pours. True as the wave to Cynthia's ray, true as the vessel to the breeze, True as the soul to music's sway, or music to Venetian seas. Soft as yon silver beams that sleep upon the ocean's trembling breast, So soft, so true, fond love shall weep, So soft, so true, with thee shall rest. The cadence with which he returned from the last stanza to a repetition of the first, the fine modulation in which his voice stole upon the first line, and the pathetic energy with which it pronounced the last, were such as only exquisite taste could give. When he had concluded, he gave the lute with a sigh to Emily, who, to avoid any appearance of affectation, immediately began to play. She sung a melancholy little air, one of the popular songs of her native province, with a simplicity and pathos that made it enchanting. But its well-known melody brought so forcibly to her fancy the scenes and the persons among which she had often heard it, that her spirits were overcome, her voice trembled and seized, and the strings of the lute were struck with a disordered hand, till, ashamed of the emotion she had betrayed, she suddenly passed on to a song so gay and airy that the steps of the dance seemed almost to echo to the notes. "'Bravissimo!' burst instantly from the lips of her delighted auditors, and she was compelled to repeat the air. Among the compliments that followed, those of the Count were not the least audible, and they had not concluded when Emily gave the instrument to Signora Livona, whose voice accompanied it with true Italian taste. Afterwards, the Count, Emily, Cavigni, and the Signora sung canzonettes, accompanied by a couple of lutes and a few other instruments. Sometimes the instruments suddenly ceased, and the voices dropped from the full swell of harmony into a low chant. Then, after a deep pause, they rose by degrees, the instruments one by one striking up, till the loud and full chorus soared again to heaven. Meanwhile, Montoni, who was weary of this harmony, was considering how he might disengage himself from his party, or withdraw with such of it as would be willing to play, to a casino. In a pause of the music, he proposed returning to Shaw, a proposal which Orsino eagerly seconded but which the Count and the other gentlemen as warmly opposed. Montoni still meditated how he might excuse himself from longer attendance upon the Count, for to him only he thought excuse necessary, and how he might get to land, till the gondolieri of an empty boat, returning to Venice, hailed his people. Without troubling himself longer about an excuse, he seized this opportunity of going thither, and, committing the ladies to the care of his friends, departed with Orsino, while Emily, for the first time, saw him go with regret, for she considered his presence a protection, though she knew not what she should fear. He landed at St. Mark's, 
and, hurrying to a casino, was soon lost amidst the crowd of gamesters. Meanwhile, the Count, having secretly dispatched a servant in Montoni's boat, for his own gondola and musicians, Emily heard, without knowing his project, the gay song of gondolieri approaching, as they sat on the stern of the boat, and saw the tremulous gleam of the moonlit wave, which their oars disturbed. Presently she heard the sound of instruments, and then a full symphony swelled on the air, and, the boats meeting, the gondolieri hailed each other. The Count then explaining himself, the party removed into his gondola, which was embellished with all that taste could bestow. While they partook of a collation of fruits and ice, the whole band, following at a distance in the other boat, played the most sweet and enchanting strains, and the Count, who had again seated himself by Emily, paid her unremitted attention, and sometimes, in a low but impassioned voice, uttered compliments which she could not misunderstand. To avoid them, she conversed with Signora Livona, and her manner to the Count assumed a mild reserve, which, though dignified, was too gentle to repress his assiduities. He could see, hear, speak to no person but Emily, while Cavigny observed him now and then with a look of displeasure, and Emily with one of uneasiness. She now wished for nothing so much as to return to Venice, but it was near midnight before the gondolas approached St. Mark's Place, where the voice of gaiety and song was loud. The busy hum of mingling sounds was heard at a considerable distance on the water, and, had not a bright moonlight discovered the city, with its terraces and towers, a stranger would almost have credited the fabled wonders of Neptune's court, and believed that the tumult arose from beneath the waves. They landed at St. Mark's, where the gaiety of the colonnades and the beauty of the night made Madame Montoni willingly submit to the Count's solicitations to join the promenade, and afterwards to take a supper with the rest of the party at his casino. If anything could have dissipated Emily's uneasiness, it would have been the grandeur, gaiety, and novelty of the surrounding scene, adorned with Palladio's palaces, and busy with parties of masqueraders. At length they withdrew to the casino, which was fitted up with infinite taste, and where a splendid banquet was prepared. But here Emily's reserve made the Count perceive that it was necessary for his interest to win the favour of Madame Montoni, which, from the condescension she had already shown to him, appeared to be an achievement of no great difficulty. He transferred, therefore, part of his attention from Emily to her aunt, who felt too much flattered by the distinction even to disguise her emotion, and before the party broke up, he had entirely engaged the esteem of Madame Montoni. Whenever he addressed her, her ungracious countenance relaxed into smiles, and to whatever he proposed she assented. He invited her, with the rest of the party, to take coffee in his box at the opera, on the following evening, and Emily heard the invitation accepted, with strong anxiety, concerning the means of excusing herself from attending Madame Montoni thither. It was very late before their gondola was ordered, and Emily's surprise was extreme when, on quitting the casino, she beheld the broad sun rising out of the Adriatic, while St. Mark's Place was yet crowded with company. Sleep had long weighed heavily on her eyes, but now the fresh sea-breeze revived her, and she would have quitted the scene with regret had not the Count been present, performing the duty which he had imposed upon himself of escorting them home. There they heard that Montoni was not yet returned, and his wife, retiring in displeasure to her apartment, 
at length released Emily from the fatigue of further attendance. Montoni came home late in the morning, in a very ill humour, having lost considerably at play, and, before he withdrew to rest, had a private conference with Cavigny, whose manner, on the following day, seemed to tell that the subject of it had not been pleasing to him. In the evening, Madame Montoni, who, during the day, had observed a sullen silence towards her husband, received visits from some Venetian ladies, with whose sweet manners Emily was particularly charmed. They had an air of ease and kindness towards the strangers, as if they had been their familiar friends for years, and their conversation was by turns tender, sentimental, and gay. Madame, though she had no taste for such conversation, and whose coarseness and selfishness sometimes exhibited a ludicrous contrast to their excessive refinement, could not remain wholly insensible to the captivations of their manner. In a pause of conversation, a lady who was called Signora Herminia took up a lute, and began to play and sing, with as much easy gaiety as if she had been alone. Her voice was uncommonly rich in tone, and various in expression, yet she appeared to be entirely unconscious of its powers, and meant nothing less than to display them. She sung from the gaiety of her heart, as she sat with her veil half thrown back, holding gracefully the lute, under the spreading foliage and flowers of some plants that rose from baskets, and interlaced one of the lattices of the saloon. Emily, retiring a little from the company, sketched her figure, with the miniature scenery around her, and drew a very interesting picture, which, though it would not, perhaps, have borne criticism, had spirit and taste enough to awaken both the fancy and the heart. When she had finished it, she presented it to the beautiful original, who was delighted with the offering, as well as the sentiment it conveyed, and assured Emily, with a smile of captivating sweetness, that she should preserve it as a pledge of her friendship. In the evening, Cavigny joined the ladies, but Montoni had other engagements, and they embarked in the gondola for St. Mark's, where the same gay company seemed to flutter as on the preceding night. The cool breeze, the glassy sea, the gentle sound of its waves, and the sweeter murmur of distant music, the lofty porticos and arcades, and the happy groups that sauntered beneath them, these, with every feature and circumstance of the scene, united to charm Emily, no longer teased by the officious attentions of Count Morano. But, as she looked upon the moonlit sea, undulating along the walls of St. Mark, and, lingering for a moment over those walls, caught the sweet and melancholy song of some gondolier as he sat in his boat below, waiting for his master, her softened mind returned to the memory of her home, of her friends, and of all that was dear in her native country. After walking some time, they sat down at the door of a casino, and, while Cavigny was accommodating them with coffee and ice, were joined by Count Morano. He sought Emily with a look of impatient delight, who, remembering all the attention he had shown her on the preceding evening, was compelled, as before, to shrink from his assiduities into a timid reserve, except when she conversed with Signora Herminia and the other ladies of the party. It was near midnight before they withdrew to the opera, where Emily was not so charmed but that, when she remembered the scene she had just quitted, she felt how infinitely inferior all the splendour of art is to the sublimity of nature. Her heart was not now affected. Tears of admiration did not start to her eyes as when she viewed the vast expanse of ocean, the grandeur of the heavens, and listened to the rolling waters, and to the faint music that, at intervals, mingled with their roar. Remembering these, the scene before her faded into insignificance. 
of the evening which passed on without any particular incident she wished the conclusion that she might escape from the attentions of the count and as opposite qualities frequently attract each other in our thoughts thus emily when she looked on count morano remembered valancourt and a sigh sometimes followed the recollection several weeks passed in the course of customary visits during which nothing remarkable occurred emily was amused by the manners and scenes that surrounded her so different from those of france but where count morano too frequently for her comfort contrived to introduce himself his manner figure and accomplishments which were generally admired emily would perhaps have admired also had her heart been disengaged from valancourt and had the count forborne to persecute her with officious attentions during which she observed some traits in his character that prejudiced her against whatever might otherwise be good in it soon after his arrival at venice montoni received a packet from m quesnel in which the latter mentioned the death of his wife's uncle at his villa on the brenta and that in consequence of this event he should hasten to take possession of that estate and of other effects bequeathed to him this uncle was the brother of madame quesnel's late mother montoni was related to her by the father's side and though he could have had neither claim nor expectation concerning these possessions he could scarcely conceal the envy which Monsieur Quesnel's letter excited. Emily had observed with concern that, since they left France, Montoni had not even affected kindness towards her aunt, and that, after treating her at first with neglect, he now met her with uniform ill-humour and reserve. She had never supposed that her aunt's foibles could have escaped the discernment of Montoni, or that her mind or figure were of a kind to deserve his attention. Her surprise, therefore, at this match had been extreme, but since he had made the choice she did not suspect that he would so openly have discovered his contempt of it. But Montoni, who had been allured by the seeming wealth of Madame Cheron, was now severely disappointed by her comparative poverty, and highly exasperated by the deceit she had employed to conceal it, till concealment was no longer necessary. He had been deceived in an affair wherein he meant to be the deceiver, outwitted by the superior cunning of a woman whose understanding he despised and to whom he had sacrificed his pride and his liberty without saving himself from the ruin which had impended over his head madame montoni had contrived to have the greatest part of what she really did possess settled upon herself what remained though it was totally inadequate both to her husband's expectations and to his necessities he had converted into money and brought with him to venice that he might a little longer delude society and make a last effort to regain the fortunes he had lost the hints which had been thrown out to valancourt concerning montoni's character and condition were too true but it was now left to time and occasion to unfold the circumstances both of what had and of what had not been hinted and to time and occasion we commit them madame montoni was not of a nature to bear injuries with meekness or to resent them with dignity her exasperated pride displayed itself in all the violence and acrimony of a little or at least of an ill-regulated mind she would not acknowledge even to herself that she had in any degree provoked contempt by her duplicity but weakly persisted in believing that she alone was to be pitied and montoni alone to be censured for as her mind had naturally little perception of moral obligation she seldom understood its force but when it happened to be violated towards herself her vanity had already been severely shocked by a discovery of montoni's contempt 
it remained to be farther reproved by a discovery of his circumstances. His mansion at Venice, though its furniture discovered a part of the truth to unprejudiced persons, told nothing to those who were blinded by a resolution to believe whatever they wished. Madame Montoni still thought herself little less than a princess, possessing a palace at Venice and a castle among the Apennines. To the castle, the Odolfo, indeed, Montoni sometimes talked of going for a few weeks to examine into its condition and to receive some rents, for it appeared that he had not been there for two years, and that, during this period, it had been inhabited only by an old servant whom he called his steward. Emily listened to the mention of this journey with pleasure, for she not only expected from it new ideas, but a release from the persevering assiduities of Count Morano. In the country, too, she would have leisure to think of Valancourt, and to indulge the melancholy which his image, and the recollection of the scenes of La Vallée, always blessed with the memory of her parents, awakened. The ideal scenes were dearer and more soothing to her heart than all the splendour of gay assemblies. They were a kind of talisman that expelled the poison of temporary evils, and supported her hopes of happy days. They appeared like a beautiful landscape, lighted up by a gleam of sunshine, and seen through a perspective of dark and rugged rocks. But Count Morano did not long confine himself to silent assiduities. He declared his passion to Emily, and made proposals to Montoni, who encouraged, though Emily rejected him. With Montoni for his friend, and an abundance of vanity to delude him, he did not despair of success. Emily was astonished and highly disgusted at his perseverance, after she had explained her sentiments with a frankness that would not allow him to misunderstand them. He now passed the greater part of his time at Montoni's, dining there almost daily, and attending Madame and Emily wherever they went, and all this notwithstanding the uniform reserve of Emily, whose aunt seemed as anxious as Montoni to promote this marriage, and would never dispense with her attendance at any assembly where the Count proposed to be present. Montoni now said nothing of his intended journey, of which Emily waited impatiently to hear, and he was seldom at home but when the Count or Signor Orsino was there, for between himself and Cavigny a coolness seemed to subsist, though the latter remained in his house. With Orsino, Montoni was frequently closeted for hours together, and, whatever might be the business upon which they consulted, it appeared to be of consequence, since Montoni often sacrificed to it his favourite passion for play, and remained at home the whole night. There was somewhat of privacy, too, in the manner of Orsino's visits, which had never before occurred, and which excited not only surprise, but some degree of alarm in Emily's mind who had unwillingly discovered much of his character when he had most endeavoured to disguise it. After these visits, Montoni was often more thoughtful than usual. Sometimes the deep workings of his mind entirely abstracted him from surrounding objects, and threw a gloom over his visage that rendered it terrible. At others his eyes seemed almost to flash fire, and all the energies of his soul appeared to be roused for some great enterprise. Emily observed these written characters of his thoughts with deep interest, and not without some degree of awe, when she considered that she was entirely in his power, but forbore even to hint her fears or her observations to Madame Montoni, who discerned nothing in her husband at these times but his usual sternness. A second letter from M. Cadnel announced the arrival of himself and his lady at the Villa Miarenti. 
stated several circumstances of his good fortune respecting the affair that had brought him into Italy, and concluded with an earnest request to see Montoni, his wife and niece, at his new estate. Emily received, about the same period, a much more interesting letter, and which soothed for a while every anxiety of her heart. Valancourt, hoping she might be still at Venice, had trusted a letter to the ordinary post that told her of his health and of his unceasing and anxious affection. He had lingered at Toulouse for some time after her departure, that he might indulge the melancholy pleasure of wandering through the scenes where he had been accustomed to behold her, and had thence gone to his brother's chateau, which was in the neighbourhood of La Vallée. Having mentioned this, he added, "'If the duty of attending my regiment did not require my departure, I know not when I should have resolution enough to quit the neighbourhood of a place which is endeared by the remembrance of you.' The vicinity to La Vallée has alone detained me thus long at Estuvières. I frequently ride thither early in the morning, that I may wander at leisure through the day among scenes which were once your home, where I have been accustomed to see you and to hear you converse. I have renewed my acquaintance with the good old Teresa, who rejoiced to see me, that she might talk of you. I need not say how much this circumstance attached me to her or how eagerly I listened to her upon her favourite subject. You will guess the motive that first induced me to make myself known to Theresa. It was, indeed, no other than that of gaining admittance into the chateau and gardens which my Emily had so lately inhabited. Here, then, I wander, and meet your image under every shade. But chiefly I love to sit beneath the spreading branches of your favourite plain, where once, Emily, we sat together where I first ventured to tell you that I loved. Oh, Emily, the remembrance of those moments overcomes me. I sit lost in reverie. I endeavour to see you dimly through my tears, in all the heaven of peace and innocence, such as you then appeared to me, to hear again the accents of that voice, which then thrilled my heart with tenderness and hope. I lean on the wall of the terrace, where we together watched the rapid current of the Garonne below, while I described the wild scenery about its source, but thought only of you. Oh, Emily, are these moments past for ever? Will they never more return? In another part of his letter he wrote thus, You see my letter is dated on many different days, and, if you look back to the first, you will perceive that I began to write soon after your departure from France. To write was, indeed, the only employment that withdrew me from my own melancholy, and rendered your absence supportable, or rather, it seemed to destroy absence. For, when I was conversing with you on paper, and telling you every sentiment and affection of my heart, you almost appeared to be present. This employment has been from time to time my chief consolation, and I have deferred sending off my packet, merely for the comfort of prolonging it, though it was certain that what I had written was written to no purpose till you received it. Whenever my mind has been more than usually depressed, I have come to pour forth its sorrows to you, and have always found consolation. And, when any little occurrence has interested my heart and given a gleam of joy to my spirits, I have hastened to communicate it to you, and have received reflected satisfaction. Thus my letter is a kind of picture of my life and of my thoughts for the last month. And thus, though it has been deeply interesting to me while I wrote it, 
and I dare hope will, for the same reason, be not indifferent to you. Yet to other readers it would seem to abound only in frivolities. Thus it is always, when we attempt to describe the finer movements of the heart, for they are too fine to be discerned, they can only be experienced, and are therefore passed over by the indifferent observer, while the interested one feels that all description is imperfect and unnecessary, except as it may prove the sincerity of the writer and soothe his own sufferings. You will pardon all this egotism, for I am a lover. I have just heard of a circumstance which entirely destroys all my fairy paradise of ideal delight, and which will reconcile me to the necessity of returning to my regiment, for I must no longer wander beneath the beloved shades where I have been accustomed to meet you in thought. La Vallée is let. I have reason to believe this is without your knowledge, from what Theresa told me this morning, and, therefore, I mention the circumstance. She shed tears while she related that she was going to leave the service of her dear mistress, and the chateau where she had lived so many happy years. And all this, added she, without even a letter from Mademoiselle to soften the news. But it is all Monsieur Quesnel's doings, and I dare say she does not even know what is going forward. Theresa added that she had received a letter from him, informing her the chateau was let, and that, as her services would no longer be required, she must quit the place on that day week when the new tenant would arrive. Theresa had been surprised by a visit from M. Quesnel, some time before the receipt of this letter, who was accompanied by a stranger that viewed the premises with much curiosity. Towards the conclusion of his letter, which is dated a week after this sentence, Valancourt adds, I have received a summons from my regiment, and I join it without regret, since I am shut out from the scenes that are so interesting to my heart. I rode to La Vallée this morning, and heard that the new tenant was arrived, and that Teresa was gone. I should not treat the subject thus familiarly, if I did not believe you to be uninformed of this disposal of your house. For your satisfaction I have endeavoured to learn something of the character and fortune of your tenant, but without success. He is a gentleman, they say, and this is all I can hear. The place, as I wandered round the boundaries, appeared more melancholy to my imagination than I had ever seen it. I wished earnestly to have got admittance, that I might have taken another leave of your favourite plane-tree, and thought of you once more beneath its shade. But I forbore to tempt the curiosity of strangers. The fishing-house in the woods, however, was still open to me. Thither I went, and passed an hour which I cannot even look back upon without emotion. Oh, Emily! Surely we are not separated for ever. Surely we shall live for each other. End of Volume 2, Chapter 3, Part A